it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, March the 30th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Very happy to have you along with us every weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern, all across this great country. And if you can't listen live, there's a podcast for that. It is always free. It is always on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. GuyBensonShow.com. Free podcast there along with all sorts of other goodies. We are broadcasting today from the studios of WFLA-FM in Tallahassee, Florida. Happy to be here. We, of course, were in town for our exclusive one-on-one interview with Governor Ron DeSantis yesterday. And if you missed that, you missed a lot. We'll be playing parts of it for various guests today. You can go back and catch the full exchange in its entirety at our website, which I'll mention one more time, Guy Benson Show. On the docket today, here's the lineup. Katie Pavlich will join us, our Fox News colleague and our town hall colleague. That's later this hour. A lot to get to with her, including, well, apparently, finally, the Washington Post has decided that the Hunter Biden laptop story is real and worthy of journalism. They're only about a year and a half late. Katie has been following that saga. We will get her take. In the next hour, Jason Rantz out in the Pacific Northwest of KTTH. He'll join us for Woke Tales, plus his take on Governor DeSantis really shooting across the bow of Disney here in this state over wokeness and the bill that he signed into law earlier this week. We'll get the take there from our friend Jason Rance. Josh Krasauer, also in our middle hour, talking politics of the day, some new polling, some new developments. Here's the thing. When you talk about the national atmosphere for an election, it's not just about one race or one poll. There's a whole collection of data points that you need to look at, and a lot of those data points are breaking bad for the Democrats. Josh will be here to explain that. And then Howie Kurtz in our final hour, I will ask him about the Washington Post and the laptop story. We'll talk about coverage of the slap at the Oscars, and more. That's all ahead on the show today. I want to begin by talking about the war in Ukraine that Russia has been waging. Just a few tidbits, a few reports, a few rumors that I want to pass along. And when I say rumors, it's U.S. officials leaking things to the media. And I tend to trust U.S. officials over Russian officials, obviously, But some of this is fog of war. Some of this could be information warfare. But this is a somewhat disturbing story in my book from FoxNews.com, and it goes to whether or not Vladimir Putin, the autocrat in Moscow, actually has a real handle on what's happening in Ukraine because he is infamously extremely isolated. Even some of those photographs where he's getting briefed from generals and other people He's at the end of a table that looks like it's 100 feet long. He's apparently a COVID freak. 
and he doesn't really do technology. So, you know, we've been very critical on a related note, just different, of President Biden for saying things and getting contradicted constantly and statements walked back. And there's still more to get to on that front today. But he at least seems to have a connection to reality as it exists, whereas there are now questions whether or not Vladimir Putin is being sold a bill of goods by his own people who are too fearful to tell him the truth because he relies on them. The rumor is that he gets everything printed out. He's a technophobe. So a covid phobe, a technophobe, extremely isolated, increasingly paranoid. And if you are somewhere in his orbit. And you see people getting arrested and detained at home and having mysterious heart attacks or not disappearing or falling out windows and that kind of thing. Maybe you're not terribly eager to share some of the worst news with the boss. So here's the story from FoxNews.com today. Russian military leaders are not telling Russian President Vladimir Putin the whole truth about what is happening on the ground in Ukraine. A U.S. official has told Fox News. According to that official, Putin was unaware that troops in Ukraine were not volunteering their services. That's interesting. Quote, Putin didn't even know his military was using and losing conscripts in Ukraine, showing a clear breakdown in the flow of accurate information to the Russian president. This, according to the official, not only is Putin being kept in the dark about who is fighting on behalf of his country, He is not being told how they are doing, the official said. Quote, we believe Putin is being misinformed by his advisors about how badly the Russian military is performing, the official told Fox News, adding that Putin's aides are also not giving him the truth about how badly Russia's economy is being hit by sanctions. The official said the communications breakdown is due to Putin's aides being, quote, too afraid to tell him the truth. Now, I'd say there are all sorts of reasons for skepticism here, and I think it's fair to add a grain of of salt to all of this because it's one unnamed U.S. official leaking to us, to our network, and we're reporting it. There's a lot of uncertainty in any war, and you like to think that maybe there's all sorts of additional drama and trouble when you're talking about adversaries and enemies. Now, this well could be true, right? With my skepticism already voiced, the other side of it is we know we, uh, we know what we know about Putin and the way that his government operates. And it seems very clear in recent days that the United States in particular, the West generally, has extraordinary penetration into internal Russian communications. They are badly, badly compromised. On the battlefield, of course, they've lost seven generals, seven already in Ukraine. We just took one of their communications jamming devices, just took control of it and flew it back to the United States because they abandoned it on the battlefield. And we're now going to use that gold mine of intelligence to see how some of their technology operates. But there's also been quite a lot of intelligence, not just behind the scenes that we don't know about, but reported publicly, open source intelligence that has been declassified and shared with the country that would suggest that maybe we've gotten an ear into the Kremlin, more than one, 
technologically speaking, and who knows, maybe there's a mole or two. The degree to which we have penetrated what they are doing and saying and thinking seems to be pretty extraordinary, which you would think would only deepen some of the paranoia of Vladimir Putin if he really knows the extent of it. Because this story, this scoop, this allegation would at least suggest that he isn't getting the information, really. Certainly not all of it. Not a complete picture because his people around him are terrified that if he knows the truth and the extent of the failures so far, who knows what would happen to them? Who knows how he would react? And so, at least according to this report and this U.S. official, they are withholding significant intelligence, information, facts on the ground from the strongman in Moscow. In the meantime, President Zelensky in Ukraine has had another conversation about specific defensive support with President Biden. That's good. I hope we keep sending them more. Biden sent a whole lot of weapons over there recently. I do wish that we could help with those MiGs, those fighter jets that the Polish government has been offering that the U.S. government apparently doesn't want to be a part of any that, you know, any of like the transfer or the furnishing of those jets. Seems like the Air Force over there, the Ukrainian Air Force, could really use it. But those conversations are continuing about the defensive support. In the meantime, also related to this, Zelensky is under no illusions about the trustworthiness of Russia. They're having these conversations. They're in the middle of negotiations. The Russians are famous, infamous, notorious for viewing these negotiations, all of them, as zero-sum. They're also notorious for being inveterate liars. It's like built into their system. It's in the DNA of the Kremlin. And so when they announced publicly that they were going to disengage from the north and around Kiev and Kharkiv and come back into the Donbass region and really focus there because that is what they always wanted to do, some of that might have been a hat tip or a, a hand tip of where they're headed. But it also could have been just a giant piece of propaganda and a head fake. So here's Zelensky sounding hopeful, but I would say righteously and understandably skeptical in cut one. Yes, we can call the signals we hear from the negotiating platform positive, but these signals do not drown out the blows of Russian shells. Of course, we see all the risks. And he's talking about the fact that the Russians continue to bomb Ukrainian cities. Despite the pledge to pull back from Kiev, they're still shelling the areas where they say that they're going to be pulling back from and redeploying to the east. And according to the U.S., according to the Pentagon, U.S. intelligence and our military assessment for now at least is whatever they're doing, whatever moves they're making, it's not really authentically a signal that they're going to do as they say. I know that's not exactly a shock. Here was John Kirby at the Pentagon explaining that, in fact, they might just be repositioning as opposed to withdrawing. This is cut two. Nobody should be fooling ourselves by the Kremlin's now recent claim that it will suddenly just reduce military attacks near Kyiv or any reports that it's going to withdraw all its forces. Has there been some movement by some Russian units away from Kyiv uh, in the last day or so? Yeah, we think so. Small numbers. 
But we believe that this is a repositioning, not a real withdrawal, and that we all should be prepared to watch for a major offensive against other areas of Ukraine. It does not mean that the threat to Kyiv is over. Yeah, time will tell, but I think that that is probably good advice. You don't want to get Pollyannish or take anything that Moscow says at face value. I will say, if they're repositioning, some of that could be voluntary, tactical, strategic on their end. Some of it has been in recent days forced, where they've been pushed back by the Ukrainians in that area outside Kiev. The Ukrainians in that counteroffensive have gained ground. And as they potentially lose some ground in the south, they're regaining territory, cities, suburbs up north in the area of the capital. So I wanted to open here today with those updates. The war continues. We are not averting our eyes from still the number one story in the world. When we come back, I want to get to this issue of Biden's walkbacks, clarifying questions from reporters and a real pot shot at one of our colleagues from a late night comedian that I thought was kind of out of bounds. It wasn't, I think, a fair hit. Not that comedy has to be fair, but I'll explain as soon as we come back. Much to get to here on this Wednesday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Katie Pavlet still to come this hour. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. So the president yesterday, and I've got his quote, it was very clear. He said when he was, when he had this chat with the U.S. troops, he said, it was all about them helping to train the Ukrainian troops that are in Poland. So are they training them in Poland or are they not training them? Well, as I said, there is regular interaction between Ukrainian soldiers uh, in Poland and the U.S. troops uh, that the president saw on the trip. There's nothing, no further detail that I can add on that uh, except to say that there is regular interaction. As you saw, we were there uh, near the border, uh, and there's regular interaction between those troops that he saw uh, and Ukrainians. I'm Guy Benson. That was... Kate Bedingfield at the White House responding to a reporter's question about something we discussed yesterday. Biden said straight up that the U.S. is training Ukrainian soldiers in Poland. And then the White House said, oh, that is uh, not what he meant to say. A general testifying yesterday before Congress said that is not what's happening. And now the White House yesterday and today saying, well, There's interactions, but there's not training, and the president didn't reveal anything that he wasn't supposed to because that was the allegation that maybe this was something that came up in a security briefing that he then jumbled in his brain and announced without really thinking it through or realizing that he was revealing something that perhaps he shouldn't have revealed. White House says, no, no, that's not what happened. Also, we're not training the troops, even though he said it. What we meant was... There's interactions. That's what he was referring to. And you can believe that or not. You can take that at face value or not. But that was one of what four walkbacks now related to his trip to Europe based on things he has said 
that his aides and helpers and subordinates have then scurried around to mop up afterwards. Now, one of those, one of those walkbacks was on chemical weapons. Right. The president had been asked if the Russians, if the Kremlin, if they use chemical weapons in Ukraine, then what happens? And Biden said, we will respond in kind. Talking about the U.S. and NATO, people noticed in kind would mean by definition that the U.S. and NATO would in turn use chemical weapons against Russia. I think we all understood that was not what he meant, but he said it. So they had to clarify that. And then Peter Ducey asked him, "Okay, if that's not what you meant, what did you mean? And Biden was very dismissive of that, although it was a totally fair question. In some ways, I think it was a glaringly obvious question to ask by Peter Ducey. But someone who disagreed was Stephen Colbert, who is the tip of the comedy spear of the Praetorian Guard when it comes to the Democratic Party. And he uses his comedy show to just make Democratic talking points every night. He's not the only one. Kimmel does it. Seth Meyers does it. And, I mean, there's a reason why Greg Gutfeld has had the success that he had and has had. It's not just because Greg and Kat and the team are funny. It's because there is uh, an opening in the market for comedy shows or humor shows that are not just the party line, predictable, insipid, left-wing thing every day. But that's what the viewers on CBS get from Colbert. And Colbert decided that the real villain in this whole exchange Certainly not the president and his gaffes and the White House cleaning it up and all the mistakes that were made. No, the real problem was Peter Ducey. Cut 18. Yesterday, uh, President Biden held a press conference and he was asked uh, a ridiculous question by a ridiculous man, Fox News reporter and that one kid in high school who wears a suit to gym class, Peter Ducey. <laughs> Jimmy, uh, drop the deuce. When he said a chemical weapon use by Russia would trigger a response in kind? It will trigger a significant response. What does that mean? I'm not going to tell you. Why would I tell you? you got to be silly. <laughs> Remember. Yes. Remember how on last night's show I said that slapping is never, ever the answer? <laughs> I'd like to file a one-time exemption on behalf of the President of the United States. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Silly question, dumb question from that Peter Ducey. Let's slap him. Big jokes over on Colbert for a totally legit question. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We are broadcasting from Tallahassee, Florida, WFLA-FM. Grateful to be here. Grateful to all of you for listening every day, 3 to 6 Eastern. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. And with us now is Katie Pavlich, editor at townhall.com, my colleague there, and a Fox News contributor, my colleague here. Katie, great to have you back. Hey, Guy. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. 
You bet. So first of all, let's start here. I saw that the White House, and you were tweeting about this, the White House is starting to kind of try to set expectations for a spring that is going to be a disaster when it comes to the border crisis, which is already bad. Mm -hmm. It's going to get worse again when Title 42 goes away, which, according to The Wall Street Journal today, could be in May, which would be like peak season in terms of the usual surge. But this would just be like on steroids, next level stuff. And the White House is kind of telling reporters somewhat gingerly already, oh, yeah, it's going to get bad. And I wonder if people and Democrats in particular are really, truly prepared for how bad it is going to get, because it's going to be pretty brutal. And it's going to once again emerge, in my opinion, as a major campaign issue. Yeah, I think the people who should be most worried, obviously, first Americans, but Democrats uh, who are seeing Hispanics in Texas leave the Democratic Party in droves as a result of this open borders policy. And yes, the White House today, they keep saying that the that Title 42, which forces single adult males to wait in Mexico for their asylum claims to be uh, adjudicated, um, it's a, they keep saying it's a CDC policy, that it's a, a public health policy, that they have nothing to do with it, and therefore it's going to be CDC's decision if they decide to repeal that and open the floodgates for thousands of single adult males per day from countries all over the world to flow into the country illegally and falsely claiming asylum. Now, the White House claims that they have no control over that because it's a guideline from the Centers for Disease Control, but that's not true because under the Trump administration, they had the Remain in Mexico policy, which was implemented before COVID struck, and it was essentially the same thing as Title 42. It forced uh, uh, illegal immigrants to wait in Mexico for their cases to be considered, their asylum cases to be considered. So in terms of how bad this is going to get, I saw uh, earlier someone describing it like, remember the uh, all the, the Haitians who were under the bridge uh, last year? Yeah. Thousands of them. Um, that happening every single day at multiple ports uh, on the border. Right, because, because the, the very quick expulsion tool that they've been using on single adult men because of the pandemic if that sort of carve out based on public health is eliminated which is what the administration is under immense pressure to eliminate then that's one of the only tools they've been using they haven't been deporting almost anyone using ice they've been using title 42 if that is no longer in the arsenal any enforcement that they've been doing which has not been a lot will get even more feeble and the incentives to come here will get even stronger The likelihood of being able to stay gets even higher. And given the time of year, that is a really toxic combination that will be a giant magnet fueling a crisis that's already, as I mentioned, extremely bad as it is. And just a quick programming note for our listeners, Katie and I and one of our colleagues at townhall.com, Julio Rosas, we are scheduled to be going down to the border in Texas in the coming weeks with Governor Abbott's team down there just to see for ourselves what's happening. We will have special coverage at townhall.com from the border and also special programming here on this show from the border. So stay tuned for more information on that. Katie, I want to hop from issue to issue. Here's another one. I'm here in Florida today because yesterday I had Governor Ron DeSantis on the show 
He, at the very top, talked about some breaking news yesterday. The state of Florida suing the Biden administration over the ongoing mask mandates on federal transportation, modes of transportation, specifically, I think, and most prominently, airplanes. I asked him about it. Here was his response on the show yesterday. Cut 24. You know, this is a, a matter of principle. They they extended it into April for no good reason. You have Fauci out there saying restrictions could re- be reimposed. And so some people say, well, he may just let it go out in April, but I think they could definitely bring it back. So the issue is, is this an overstep of government authority or not? And so our attorney general's done a great job. You know, she filed the lawsuit today. And so we're standing behind that. I'm surprised that courts haven't, upheld, uh, haven't struck it down by now. But clearly at this point, I don't even think it has a rational basis, uh, given where, where we are as a society. Katie Pavlitz, your thoughts on this? <laughs> yeah, it's it's long overdue, and I'm glad that the states are stake, are taking action on this. They're backing up what a number of pilots have asked for, flight attendants, airline CEOs, and the bottom line is it's not based in science at all. It's based in government control. And if you read through the lawsuit, like I did yesterday and reported on for Town Hall, the arguments that they make in the lawsuit are are very much based in uh, solid legal grounding in the sense they talk about the CDC overstepping their boundaries in terms of the Constitution, the fact that they kept extending this thing without asking for public comment, and that it's arbitrary and capricious in its enforcement. And it's true. I mean, I wrote a column a couple weeks ago about how going to the airport is, is, is the worst gaslighting experience that you'll have because they have all the old signs up from the beginning of the pandemic. They haven't taken them down. You have to get on the plane with your mask. They tell you before you get on the plane to keep six feet, to keep some space, so that you get right on the plane. You're sitting you know, next to hundreds of other people on a flight. None of it makes any sense, um, and it's caused a lot of problems for flight attendants, quite frankly, of having to enforce something that is not based in science. Another topic overseas, there have been a series, and we touched on this fleetingly on yesterday's show, but I want to get into it a little bit more here with you. I know you watch this issue closely. A series of terrorist attacks in Israel, three shootings in the span of a week. Now 11 Israelis killed by these terrorists. I know it's a huge issue in Israel. Uh, Naftali Bennett, who's the prime minister, is saying that this is a scourge. This is a spree of Arab terrorism in Israel, the likes of which really hasn't been seen for a while. It's been the deadliest spree in Israel in well over a decade at this point. What are you hearing about this? And it sounds like kind of, yes, maybe cells that are activated, but it's awfully hard to stop individual people with guns, even if they're neutralized pretty quickly. This seems to be the latest effort by whether it's Hamas or I believe in this case, most recently was Islamic Jihad. It seems like their go to strategy now is gunmen. Yeah, there's a couple of different things going on. The first is that it's the most difficult uh, challenge of this of this is uh, terrorists who are Israeli Arab citizens uh, who engage in this kind of terrorism because they have um, the same rights as every other Israeli citizen does. And so the, the rules are different than, say, a, a terrorist who comes in from the West Bank, which is one of the, the situations here. Uh, Ramadan is right around the corner. Um, the Abraham Accords are being celebrated in Jerusalem this week by the Secretary of State and a number of uh, Arab countries, which is a good thing. I think that a lot of these terrorist attacks are trying to undermine that message. And then, mm-hmm. of course, you have the Iran deal uh, and these terrorist groups, Hamas, uh, being 
you know, emboldened by the idea that they will maybe be getting more money and that the Biden administration is in the week on that. And we saw last summer, of course, uh, when they were renegotiating the Iran deal, Hamas launched a rocket war against Israel as a result of knowing that appeasement um, was coming. So it's that. It's also concerning because uh, Passover and Easter are two weeks away. And of course, uh, Christians and Jews are celebrating that. So they're certainly on high alert. There are lots of police being put uh, in the streets all around the country. Um, but certainly concerning given uh, these terrorist attacks are happening, not just in uh, what they would say disputed areas, but uh, just outside of Tel Aviv. Um, so they're very worried about it and, and watching it closely and handling it in the best way as they, they know how. Back on the home front, Katie Pavlich, there's this headline today in The Washington Post. Inside Hunter Biden's multi-million dollar deals <laughs> with a Chinese energy company. A Washington Post review yeah. confirms key details and offers new documentation of Biden family interactions with Chinese executives. And this is something that we will certainly ask Howie Kurtz about later in the show. But I really want to get your take on it briefly. Let me just quote from this story. Quote, while many aspects of Hunter Biden's financial arrangement with CEFC China Energy had been previously reported and were included in a Republican-led Senate report from 2020, I would just add, when Republicans do investigations, it is almost always viewed with suspicion or just outright dismissed or ignored by the press because that's just a partisan thing. So that was not exactly heralded in the media. A Washington Post review, they write, confirmed many of the key details and found additional documents showing Biden family interactions with Chinese executives. Over the course of 14 months, the Chinese energy conglomerate and its executives paid $4.8 million in entities controlled by Hunter Biden and his uncle, according to government records, court documents, and newly disclosed bank statements, as well as emails containing a copy of a laptop, hard drive, that purportedly once belonged to Hunter Biden. And the story goes on about the documents, and there was a $1 million legal retainer given uh, to Hunter Biden and all these wire transfers, millions of other dollars. They can't confirm, they don't have proof that Joe Biden personally benefited from this. I would say at least not yet. But the documents, quote, illustrate the ways in which Biden's family profited from relationships built over decades in public service. And later on in the story, it confirms yet again, as the New York Times has done and others, the authenticity of that laptop and some of the documents that were actively squelched and censored by the mainstream news media, by big tech, by intelligence figures with reputations, put those reputations on the line saying it was all nonsense. It was all Russian disinformation. Well, not so much, Katie. And here's The Washington Post finally, 18 months later, admitting as much. Well, the first thing I would say is you don't have to look just to the Hunter Biden laptop to find evidence that Joe Biden himself benefited from this. So you had Tony Bobolinsky, who came out during the 2020 election, who was a business partner with Hunter Biden, saying that 10 percent always went to the big guy, who was, of course, Joe Biden. We know that they shared uh, bank accounts. So The Washington Post is not the only place uh, to look for information about how Joe Biden may have benefited. Also, don't forget that when Joe Biden was vice president, uh, Hunter Biden hitched a ride on Air Force Two. Uh, over to China and inked a number of deals with communist China uh, tied uh, businesses there and then flew back to the United States on Air Force Two 
with the vice president. And then I would say the most alarming thing about this um, outside of the censorship, which I'm sure Howie will get to, is the intelligence officials who claimed that this was Russian disinformation in order to get Joe Biden elected, to cover up the Biden family corruption. The idea that those are the kinds of people who are in charge of our intelligence services, uh, that trust that has been broken there and the the credibility that is completely destroyed as a result really brings into question uh, the other things that they tell us about what's really going on in the world. And I sometimes roll my eyes when people talk about the deep state and hyperventilate and see some conspiracy around every corner. However, if you want to see something akin to a deep state in action, it's 50 top formal and mm-hmm. in, uh, former intelligence officials saying, oh, yeah, that's Russian disinformation, even though they had no evidence and it wasn't true at the behest of and basically on the say so of the Democratic campaign for president in the closing days of an election. And that combination led the news media to salute and line up and say, we're not going to cover it. And big tech throttling or outright censoring the story. That is a very disturbing collusion of factors. And again, it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, finally they can tell us, oh, wait, actually, the laptop was real. The contents were real. Uh, Millions of dollars flowing into Biden coffers from China. That also happened. Although in case you're concerned about this, Katie, don't worry. John Harwood at CNN, who is, uh, I think, (laughs) the the DNC's top spokesman over there, he said this earlier, cut 27. But so far, there is zero evidence that Vice President Biden or President Biden has done anything wrong in connection with what Hunter Biden has done. It's an important distinction. Except you already pointed out we don't know that to be true. There are some indications that that is not true. And, Katie, Biden disclaimed any knowledge at all when Peter Ducey asked him on the campaign trail, did he know anything about any of these foreign dealings with his son? He said no. He knew nothing about any of it. That is now, I think, totally implausible slash debunked. So I would say misrepresenting what you knew, that would be wrongdoing in my book, would it not? Well, and not only did he not say that he didn't know about the deals, he said he never spoke to his son about any of his business dealings. It wasn't that he knew, you know, talked to him about it and he just didn't know what the details were. He specifically said, I never talked to my son about it. About and for any of it. media people now to try and, you know, defend Biden and say there's no evidence. That's such a cop out for people who don't bother to look for anything, to do any kind of investigation at all. Uh, into this situation. It's like saying, you know, it's like saying, oh, there's no evidence after you never looked for any of it. Right. Um, well, and and that's such a key point. My question is what the future is. Right. Like, why is this all happening now? Right. Why 500 days after this was initially published are all of these media outlets all at the same time now covering this story? And I think we'll probably find out about the answer here in a couple of weeks. But there's something well, going on. I have a theory. And the theory was further buttressed today by CNN, the aforementioned network, reporting that the Justice Department, so they're getting their sources, and I think this is also telling, right? The DOJ sources that CNN uses are now telling CNN, yeah, this federal investigation into Hunter Biden is really ramping up. So I think there's going to be some ugliness to come, perhaps even with you know charges or indictments or something like that. This isn't over And so a lot of the news organizations who just blindly signed up for the Biden talking points to help beat Trump in the fall of 2020, they're getting out in front 
of what's coming, whatever that's going to be. And their sources are telling them, hey, we got to do this. And and just one more point here, because I think you brought it up, uh, Our one of our colleagues here, Wyatt, made this point on the call earlier as well. The Washington Post doing this reporting and this journalism that they've now published this week, as you point out, you know, a year and a half late. This is exactly the type of stuff they could have done back then. They could have sought to find authentication of these documents and the laptop. They could have looked more intensely at this question about the Chinese money, et cetera. They chose not to do it. They chose to suppress it. And the journalistic work that they are doing now, there was nothing preventing them from doing exactly this stuff back then, except for a political agenda, which seemed to be paramount. Quickly, last word to you, Katie. No, I think that's absolutely true. Um, you know, we, I just can't forget over NPR at the time this came out in the New York Post saying this is a non-story and that's why they weren't covering it. Uh, well, yep. it's a story now and nothing has changed with the information. Uh, it's very shameful. And- Katie Pavlich at townhall.com. Sorry to cut you off there, Katie. I just got to get on this break here. My colleague twice over and my friend, townhall.com, Fox News contributor Katie Pavlich on The Guy Benson Show. Katie, thank you. Thanks, Guy. Have a good one. Talk soon. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. New poll out today here in Florida from St. Leo University on the governor's race. Ron DeSantis, who we had on the show yesterday, leads Charlie Crist in a hypothetical matchup by 16 points. And Nikki Freed, another Democrat, by 24 points in this poll. I think that'll tighten, but I think a high single-digit win, maybe even cracking double digits, at the moment seems plausible. His approval rating here, DeSantis, 59% overall and on handling COVID. Those are robust numbers for the governor here. Next hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Don't go anywhere. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show time now for our middle hour here on the guy benson show second of three between three and six eastern every weekday guy podcast always free of charge if you want to go there all sorts of other Program-related items at that website, GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert. The Dow closes down today, 66 points in the red, finishing at 35,228. Joining us now is Jason Rance, host of The Jason Rance Show on KTTH out in Seattle, Tacoma, our great affiliate out there. You also see him all the time on Fox News and Fox Business. Jason, welcome back. Hey, thank you so much for returning me to the show. I appreciate it, especially in the middle hour. Yeah, so it's a key hour, crucial. Exactly. And we want the, to kick the other off. Hours, the other hours are the vessels to <laughs> submit all the meat in the middle, so that's what we are. That's exactly right. Meat here in the sandwich. So let's talk about an issue that I raised with Governor DeSantis here in Florida. We're broadcasting from WFLA-FM in Tallahassee today. I interviewed the governor at the governor's mansion yesterday. And this week, a big item in the news, not just in Florida but nationally, is this legislation, the parental rights legislation, 
that some critics have called the don't say gay bill, which I think is inaccurate. It's an activist slogan that many news journalists just swallowed and, and reported and just sort of regurgitated in their pieces about this. But what's interesting, and we'll replay some of that exchange, because I went back and forth with follow-up questions and all of that. We had a respectful dialogue about it. I did with the governor, and, and I have some issues with the law. I have parts of it that I like, other parts that concern me. I asked him about some of that stuff. But one thing that I find, Jason, very frustrating and really galling, actually, is the position that Disney has taken on all of this. They've been very vocal at the very last minute, by the way, as he points out, the very last minute they got involved and they put out a statement following the signing of the bill saying that it's outrageous and an attack and they're going to work with everything that they've got to make sure that this law is either repealed or thrown out in some way. So DeSantis, in our interview yesterday, fired back pretty hard at Disney. I mean, this is a big company in the state. It's a big employer in the state. But I think he wanted to punch back in a way that's going to get their attention. Here's what he said to me in Cut 26. It's one thing if you're taking a political position about, you know, don't say gay, you know, you can't say the word. We know that's not in the bill. But they would they would they would uh, be targeting provisions that provide parents substantive protections. And so I think they overstepped their bounds with that statement. They do not run this state. I'm not going to let our state be hijacked by a bunch of California corporate executives. And the fact of the matter is, I think they think that they whatever they want in Florida, they get. That may have been true in the past. That is not true now. Um, and we're going to govern this state based on the best interests of the people of Florida, not what any corporation, uh, but particularly that corporation, is demanding. Okay, so... That was a shot across the bow for sure, saying in the past, maybe Disney thinks they can get whatever they want in the state of Florida. And maybe that's been true in years past, not anymore, kind of new sheriff in town type warning almost for Disney. I just wonder, Jason, from your vantage point as someone who is also right leaning and LGBT, what do you make of this whole controversy overall and then Disney specifically? Well, by the way, we should point out the role reversal here, where apparently Democrats now are all, all right with corporations determining what policy is going to exist, and conservatives are the ones saying, no, 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 we're not going to allow that. So I thought mm-hmm. that, that was a, an interesting moment here. I, I think what's happening here is, yet again, folks on the left trying to get away with their – trying to basically pull the wool over everyone's eyes as to what's going on in the classroom. They did this with CRT, where they pretended first it wasn't being taught, and then they uh, pretended, no, it's actually just about real history, and if you stand in the way, you are a bigot. Well, they're doing the same thing here. They are trying to introduce to young children lesson plans, curriculum that are pretty fringe, that are very far to the left on gender identity. It does not belong in the classroom. No one is saying that you have to deny the existence of gay people. No one is saying any of that. All it's saying is that as part of a lesson plan, instruction, and that's literal word that's in this bill, instruction on the non-binary experience is not relevant to a kindergarten through third grader. In fact, I don't think it's relevant for any kids in the classroom. This idea that we're going to tell young children that they might feel like a boy, but they can also be a girl, but sometimes they can be neither, but sometimes they can be both. That's not up for a teacher. We know that, unfortunately, gender has now become, and really biology, has become a political issue. 
It's not. It shouldn't be. There's nothing wrong or even inherently controversial with what's in this bill. The controversial stuff are the things that people are just making up about what the bill does. This has nothing to do with LGBTQ identity for myself or or even for you, I don't think. This is just about what is appropriate in the classroom. And we can have a disagreement right, on what is appropriate in the classroom. I think that that can be subjective. But they're just making things up, and right. you need to suddenly get involved. Okay, well, how about this? Hey, Disney, does that mean you support every other law that has been passed? Or are you going to now tell us every single day what are the bills you support, what are the bills you don't support, tell us mm-hmm. why, mm-hmm. and let's have that conversation? Of course not. They're being pushed into this by activists, but shame on them because they gave in. Yeah, and we saw this in Georgia, for example, on that yep. voting law where Delta Airlines got all woke. Coca-Cola did, too. And they've actually, at Coca-Cola, they've done a real backflip on this. They have sprinted away from the politics. I saw a statement from one of their executives just the other day that was uh, definitely saying, oh, no, no, we're, we're not really interested in doing <laughs> some of this woke stuff. And I said, I don't want woke cola I don't want diet woke. I want woke zero. I'm a woke zero guy, and I'm finally getting it from Coca-Cola, which makes me happy. But this is the position that Disney has put itself in. And one of the questions that I posed to Governor DeSantis yesterday was, look, I have concerns about some of the vagueness of elements of the law, the stuff that really hasn't been talked about or really screamed about and all these, you know, tantrums and Instagram posts that people put up. There's just so much wrong information out there. I tried to stick with stuff that was actually substantive, thoughtful, You could back up some of these questions with actual verbiage in the law itself. But one of the questions that I posed to the governor was, when Disney has been out there attacking the law, attacking him for backing the law, doing all this stuff to appease a certain element of society, and of course this is a company that largely caters to young children and their parents, right? So there's that, and we've seen the polling on this. I'm not sure that they've necessarily thought all of this through very carefully. In those conversations, because apparently there were some, did they indicate that Disney, as a corporate entity, is opposed, for example, to the K through 3 instruction ban that you just referenced? Are they against that? Are they taking the opposite side of a substantial majority of the American people on that question? And I think that's the type of thing that they should have to answer, because I think it would probably make some of them squirm. They, they want to appease certain factions, but when it comes down to brass tacks, are they against that provision, yes or no? I would love Disney to be forced to answer that question corporately. Well, of course, but they're, they're never going to be in that position. They're not going to grant any interviews to folks who would even ask that question. They put out statements, and then they kind of just move on, hoping that they will at least you know, placate the rabid activists on the left who were demanding that they get involved. I, I, you know, At some point, I, I always have a little bit of mixed feelings when I, I look at any company on any issue, and if activists on either side are pushing a company into a position, I always feel a little bit bad for them. Because it's like, yeah, they're kind of in a tough spot. But once they give in, once they decide to take a position, regardless of that position, well, now it's open game. Now we should have the right to know where you stand on all these other issues. My assumption is if you don't say anything against a bill, then you are in favor of it. If you don't speak against a candidate, then I'm going to assume you're in favor of it. Now, is that a fair 
assessment? No, of course not. But that's what they are basically forcing us to do. Now, that's so their standard. Why is this issue so important? But, but exactly. They set the standards. We didn't. So tell so, me then why is this issue important but uh, your relationship with China is not? Explain right. that to me. So I want to get into some of that hypocrisy here in a second. But first I want to play you a soundbite. They had a virtual on all-hands meeting over at Disney recently on these issues because they wanted to, again, assure everyone that they're on the right side, they're with the angels, they're against all this horrible stuff in Florida, so let's do a big Zoom call about it. Now, of course, there are people within Disney who disagree, a lot of them, I would imagine, and some of them have been leaking the contents of that call, of that Zoom meeting, to concern. Like I saw Chris Rufo has been publishing some of these videos. You have one of the executives at Disney in one of these videos, Carrie Burke, talking about how she is the mother of two queer children, including a transgender child and a pansexual child. I don't, I'm not even quite clear on that nomenclature, what that means. But that's what she said. Fine. She loves her kids. That's great. Everyone's entitled to be who they are. I have no problem with that. However, she also said, we need to really do a lot more queer characters here at Disney. And in Cut 23, here was part of what she said to everyone at Disney. Some people clearly dissented and started leaking it. Listen to Cut 23. We have many, many, many LGBTQIA characters in our stories, and, and, and yet we don't have enough leads um, and narratives in which gay characters just just get to be characters um, and and not have to be about gay stories. And so um, that's been very eye-opening for me. Um, and and I, I can tell you um, it's something that I feel perhaps had this moment not happened, um, I as a leader and me as my colleagues would not have focused on. And, and going forward, um, I, I certainly will be more so. I know that we will be, and um, and I hope this is a moment where, shoot, um, the fifty percent of the tears, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> are coming. Um, uh, we don't. We just don't allow each other to go backwards. So she was getting choked up at one point. There was a discussion about trying to have like fifty percent of characters or movies involving people in Disney shows or films that are LGBT or people of color and like you know, quotas for some of this stuff that was under discussion, Jason. And I just, I have to wonder to your point, if this is their corporate values that they want to really signal hard to the world about their corporate values, why do they have a Disney cruise line, for example, that stops just, there's one leaving in a few months that has a port of call in a country where homosexuality is criminalized. It is illegal. You can go to prison for being gay in that country, but Disney does business there. Disney has theme parks in communist China. They film movies in communist China and thank the CCP for letting them film, even in Xinjiang province, which is the genocide province. How does that fall into their corporate values? They, well, it, they, they actually even censor their own movies to placate the Chinese Communist Party. How does that fall within their corporate values? I mean, if this is the road that they want to go down on politics, then you're right. The floodgates should be open, and these questions, very uncomfortable ones, should be asked repeatedly every opportunity. 
100% agree they're doing this to themselves. Now, obviously, if they thought it would hurt their business, they would not have said anything as it relates to the don't say gay bill. They probably would not have gotten involved, but they were looking at the data internally and saying, you know, from a business perspective, this is the right move. And that's why you see such a, a conflict with some of the statements that they make and some of the business practices that they end up taking. And so I think we should all be calling this out nonstop. If they want to do this, if they want to turn into another arm of the Democratic Party publicly, well, then we're going to call out what they're doing you know, in ways that aren't immediately identifiable. No one was looking into where they were taking their cruise ships. No one was really looking into that until we were basically forced into seeing whether or not they're living up to some of the right. virtues. And, and that's here. the thing, Jason. They have actively chosen, they have elected to join a culture war. And in a culture war, people fire back. There are multiple sides. And perhaps they underestimated the extent to which the governor of Florida would be willing to really go toe-to-toe with them because, as he indicated in years past, it was sort of like Disney would say something in Florida and Florida politicians would say, yes, you know, how high? That is not the case anymore with DeSantis, and I wonder if there's been a miscalculation in Florida. And I've also heard that there was a disconnect between the California-based executives and a lot of the don't-say-gay so-called walkout was out there in California versus in Florida – where they're on the ground and they understand this is a very different place in California. I'm not sure if Disney is necessarily all on the same page on this stuff either. So there is a fracture there. This is a self-imposed controversy, a self, an elected controversy that they have chosen for themselves. And I am more than happy to wade into it because whatever you think of the bill or the law itself, Disney and its hypocrisy and its wokeness on certain things and the money that they throw at Colin Kaepernick, for example, I think it's absolutely all fair game because if they're going to engage in this stuff, that's on them and we're allowed to notice and push back. That's what we're doing here. We're going to break real quick. When we come back, a quick woke tales update with Jason Rance, my guest. It's the Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show from Tallahassee, Florida today on to Miami tonight for the show Thursday and Friday. With us is Jason Rance, host of the Jason Rance Show on KTTH, our affiliate out in Seattle and Tacoma area. And it's time for Woke Tales. Woke Tales. Jason, you have one of these seemingly every day. Tell us about this school district in Washington State, Clover Park School District, and this new policy of theirs. Yeah, so they're implementing, and to be fair, it's happening all across the state, but they're implementing something called culturally responsive student discipline policies, which effectively say you're supposed to take into consideration the background or identity of the student because it might actually explain why they engaged in some kind of behavior that would lead to discipline. The problem with doing things like this is that it almost certainly will lead to disparate treatment on the basis of one's identity. So if a kid 
ends up punching someone, they might not get punished the same way as another kid who punches someone because they would say, well, this kid's background comes from a, a single-family household. Maybe they're uh, you know, economically not doing so well, so maybe we should consider that when doling out the discipline because we want to get at that underlying cause and make sure that they don't continue to get into trouble. It's, of course, inherently unfair. It's wrong. It could be illegal. And it's almost certainly illegal. What they'll say is the school district says this is not actually what we're doing. We're just collecting some of the data. Yeah, but mm. when you're collecting the data, the intent is because you want to see whether or not there's any sort of disproportionality in the student discipline. And we see that all the time where people are saying, well, look, we have more black students than white students who are getting disciplined. And we're supposed to immediately assume that's because of racism. Well, and Jason – and the thing that strikes me just hearing you talk about this, I'm all for empathy and understanding that some people have a tougher lot in life than others for whatever reason, but the rules have to apply evenly to everyone. And if you stop if you stop adhering to that fundamental value, then it's just totally subjective based on outside factors, and that is the opposite of fairness and justice. It's not what we should be doing in this country anywhere. Jason Rance on The Guy Benson Show. Back right after this. Stay tuned. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the midway point here on today's show and the week, Wednesday edition of The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, podcast free every day. Joining me now is Josh Krasauer, politics editor at National Journal and Fox News Radio political analyst. Josh, good to have you back here. Hey, Guy, good to be back on the show. I want to first get your reaction to my interview yesterday with Governor Ron DeSantis here in Tallahassee, Florida. We spoke for more than half an hour. We broke it up over three segments on yesterday's show. I asked him, among other things, because we really covered a lot of different topics, I asked him about some statements made recently by Governor Gavin Newsom, who in an interview out in California seemed to really bend over backwards to criticize and attack DeSantis, saying that he viewed DeSantis as a performance artist who he doesn't look to for guidance or inspiration on anything, including COVID or other policies. And DeSantis was basically jumping out of his shoes to respond. Here's part of what he said in Cut 13. Well, first I would say, how many people are moving from his state fleeing to come to mine for freedom versus vice versa? And I guarantee you, we win in the net in migration. People are leaving California in numbers we've never seen because of his failed policies. And he started rattling off some of the COVID data as well. Excess deaths, uh, death rate adjusted for population age. I mean, he had all of this stuff in his brain and he just seemed almost like chomping at the bit to draw this distinction between Florida and California. It seems to me that Newsom, I guess, decided that that confrontation would benefit him in some way politically. And it seems like if that's going to be what Newsom wants to do, uh, Ron DeSantis here in Florida is more than happy to have that conversation, Josh. Yeah, Guy, look, these are two leading figures within their own party that could well be running for president in 2024. So it wouldn't be uh, all that unusual to have a Newsom-DeSantis future presidential matchup. And, you know, Governor DeSantis does make a pretty um, compelling point that voters are voting with their feet. California has really lagged behind its traditional uh, standing and getting people coming to the West Coast. It's lo it lost a congressional seat in, in the re reapportionment this year. Uh, it, it, its growth has slowed considerably in the last decade. 
And Florida is one of the fastest growing states in the country. And even, you know, members of Congress like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are spending their their spring breaks in, in, in Florida. And a lot of folks are still moving to Florida. So he has a very compelling point on, in that regard. And look, I think the, these culture war, the big the big debate is over the culture wars in Florida, whether, you know, the parental rights bill that he's championed and he talked about with you on the show, whether that's popular or not. Newsom is on the other side of, of the culture war debates. And there's been a whole lot of polling in the last week or two that shows DeSantis notably easily on, on the right side of public opinion when it comes to restricting, you know, questions about gender identity to kindergarten and third graders, whether it, when it comes to some of the hot button um, issues of a race, gender identity that, that are really driving American politics. It's California that is much more of an outlier than Florida, which is, is squarely in the political mainstream right now. On that point, DeSantis revealed to me and to our audience here yesterday that he has never polled an issue during his entire governorship. He has not polled an issue ahead of a decision. He has not focus grouped. I think that's interesting. He said, I look at the data. I look at the information in front of me. I gut check my convictions and I make a call. I don't do any of this public opinion stuff. My goal is to make decisions and then move public opinion if necessary. I just wonder what your reaction is to that, A, and B, I wonder on some of this culture war stuff, it seems like because a lot of the people on the left and the Democrats are so deep in this thick bubble, whether it's Twitter or social media or sort of this activist class, they often seem really, really, really out of touch with where mainstream America is on some of this, and yet they are utterly – uh, sort of like indignant and self-righteous in their belief that they are on the right side of history and all this other stuff. I wonder if the Democrats might actually benefit from some focus grouping and some polling of real people before they you know, leap into these culture war fights and maybe don't really quite understand why they keep losing some of these battles. You know, what's interesting, Guy, is that Democrats have learned a lot more from actually talking to people in person and having these groups of a couple dozen swing voters talking about these issues rather than looking at the polls. So they, a lot of people are not comfortable giving honest responses to pollsters these days, especially when it comes to these really, really controversial or polarizing cultural de- debates. Um, you know, I, I think we saw this with the masking debate, by the way, like we, the Democrats were insistent yes. that being masked was the popular schools and businesses. That was the popular decision because, frankly, a lot of polls suggested that. And the reality was the polls weren't capturing a a more silent majority of of voters that were willing to say the right thing to the pollsters. But when push came to shove and when these mandates kept on going on, indefinitely, they got frustrated and they voted with their with their with their, you know, with their feet and with their with their uh, frustrations. And I think you're seeing that in in, in Florida. And I think that's what Governor DeSantis is alluding to, that, you know, the polling sometimes doesn't capture. I mean, people are afraid to speak out even among their friends on some of these, these, these issues. On, on gender and race, why would they tell a random pollster what they really think? There's a certain herd mentality, um, a social desirability bias, if you will, when it comes to these hot button issues. And I've been convinced just from my own conversations, from focus groups that I've heard on both the Republican and Democratic sides, guy, that these issues are underestimating the degree of opposition, of the, of the frustration that a lot of traditional and, and, and mainstream Americans are feeling towards the, the progressive and liberal elite on, on these very sensitive cultural issues. Josh Crossauer, one of the things that you and I talked about a ton on this show leading up to last November was the governor's race in Virginia. And 
especially in that last month or two, you kept coming back to a few things. Number one, reporting on the ground what was actually happening based on, you know, deeply reporting the race, which is what you did. Number two, just overall fundamentals in the state, the Commonwealth, and in the country. Let's talk, because I I think it's still a little early to do a ton of on-the-ground analysis because we're, what, seven or eight months out from the election, but it's not too early at all to assess the fundamentals of the electorate right now and almost on everything. And I, I have a rooting interest. I'm glad this is the case, but I think... The opposite was true, and I didn't deny it, you know, in 2018, for example. The fundamentals are breaking hard in the wrong direction for the Democratic Party. Just a couple data points here. Quinnipiac, their new national poll today, has Joe Biden, the president, at a 36 percent approval rating overall. He's at 34 percent, one-third approval on the economy. The Fox News poll that just came out a few days ago has the Republicans up two. On the generic congressional ballot, they almost never lead on that. Uh, when they are ahead at all, it's it's usually uh, foretells a very big year for them. NBC also had them up two. There's a Harris Harvard poll out yesterday that has them up six on the generic ballot over the Democrats. An 18 point gap favoring the Republicans among independents. That's just the polling, Josh. I'll stop there for a moment. We can get to some of the other breadcrumbs, too. Uh, but just your analysis of where things stand a little over half a year out. Yeah, this is the worst political environment in, in many years for, for the Democrats. You have to go back to at least 2014 when Republicans won nine Senate seats and gained some House seats for there to be a similarly bad year for, for Democrats. And I think it might be even worse than even in, in Obama, than even during Obama's low points of his presidency. You look, you have you have you laid out the job approval numbers for, for Joe Biden. He's in the 30s in some polls and the low 40s in others. That's about as low as, as you get, especially in our polarized times. And you at least can get, guarantee yourself some support from your own party. The other worrisome sign and the NBC poll that came out this weekend really highlighted this. Biden is losing support from his own base. So he, he's, he's doing horribly with independence. He's in the low 30s at best. But he's doing weekly with African-American voters, 62 percent job approval. He's doing weekly with Hispanic voters, underwater, under 40 percent approval. He's doing poorly with women, which was a, a – he really exploited the gender gap to win the presidency. He's, he's in, in the 40s among women. These are just red flag numbers. That well, young people are, just you know, not engaged at all. Not engaged, yeah. yeah not engaged. Uh, there's no the base. If, if they like Democrats, they don't like Republicans, they're not showing up to vote in the midterm elections coming up. So this is a tsunami. This is we're, we're still, you know, seven months, eight months away till, till the November elections. But we're looking at the potential of, of a Republican tsunami that could sweep them into power, certainly in the House, but also in the Senate. On that front, New York Times has a story today, a Democratic super PAC, like the key Dem super PAC on the House side, their advertising strategy where they're buying ads points to a map that is expanding and from their perspective, not expanding the way they want it to. Right. They have to play defense a lot more places than they were hoping. And so they are plunking down money in some districts that they're at least worried might be winnable for the Republicans. And there was a Republican strategist quoted in this story saying the Democrats are basically admitting to themselves that the majority is gone. And right now they're doing triage to try to limit the damage. Does that sound right to you? It does. I mean, they're they're playing a game of whack-a-mole where they're trying to put as much money in as many districts as possible early on. 
to stop the the bleeding. But you know, look, some of these districts that 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 are getting uh, the markets at least that are where you're seeing these big investments are, are districts and areas that are traditionally democratic. These are not um, Rio Grande Valley, for instance, in Texas. We've talked about the border districts in Texas since the last election, but you know there are a bunch of congressional races, including ones that have been, been traditionally solidly Democratic House seats that now look like they, they could be in play for Republicans. Uh, you see that all over the map, areas that have been blue, that were not even contested by Republicans, now looking much more competitive and very winnable for the GOP in November. Uh, so this this is a map that, you know, look, there, the, interest, the paradox about the House map is that gerrymandering has meant that they're less traditional toss-up seats, but because the environment is looking so strong for Republicans, even seats that aren't usually in play are, are coming into play because of this this uniquely uh, strong environment for the Republican Party. You also have a column today about another factor that may not be quite as obvious, jumping out at you as just polling or what have you, but it's rural voters and the nature of some of these districts that you just mentioned having disproportionately high number of rural voters who have gone screaming, running away from the Democratic Party in recent cycles. That explain why that could be significant too in terms of the you know the size of a wave if there is one. Yeah, this was a counterintuitive finding based on my reporting and and analysis that, you know, almost all the Democratic gains over the last few elections have been in the suburbs. And they've lost so much ground in these rural states and rural districts. And it turns out that there still are a lot of rural districts that are held by Democrats or that rural rural areas of the country where Democrats are still hoping to win seats in for the House of Representatives this year. And uh, that, that is a problem. The Democratic Party has faced a challenge because they cater to the very progressive urban wing of their party, and it's rendered the remaining Democrats who represent rural territory, which still constitute a, a decent number in the House, they're disproportionately exposed. So you're, if you look at the Cook Political Report ratings of the 20 most vulnerable or 20 most winnable seats, the toss-up seats, over half of them are, are in rural or, or partially rural districts. Uh, and given how Democrats have lost so much ground in recent years in those areas, it's another big red flag about their, their performance, their, their upcoming standing in the midterm elections. I would say, just as a caution for Republicans and conservatives, not counting chickens, I remember the Cook Political Report and their toss-up districts and looked you know, very strong for Democrats in 2020. They had opportunities maybe to even grow their advantage in the House of Representatives. And then Republicans won every single one, basically, of those toss-ups and a few of the others, like, shocking people, gaining double-digit seats in 2020. That's not what the conventional wisdom was expecting. On the other hand... The environment is what it is. And that was, you know, kind of a weird year in some ways, 2020. This one's shaping up to be a little bit more of a paradigmatic midterm election in this presidency, in this point of a presidency. And that's why I think the Democrats are as worried as they are. Last question, Josh Krasauer, briefly on the Senate side of the map. And you and I will probably talk about this here for months. Uh, the Republicans have an issue on their hands in Missouri. You and I have talked about it since the allegations and revelations the ex-wife of uh, the then frontrunner, Eric Greitens, former governor, who had to resign in, in scandal and disgrace, uh, he has come down in the polls because of those accusations from his ex-wife. The problem is, and that's, that's, from my perspective, good news, problem is he's still plausibly within striking distance right there of being the nominee if the 
party doesn't coalesce behind someone else. And for now, it seems like they're all all the other opponents are saying, oh, yeah, this is terrible. He needs to get out of the race. But none of them are willing to say, and I'm going to as well to make sure that he doesn't become the nominee. Uh, What are your thoughts on the dynamic there? And then the second question on the Senate side is with some of the recruitment problems that Republicans have had this cycle, some of them pretty high profile. The Democrats have also had their own struggles. Maybe just deal with that a little bit here in the time we have left. Yeah, Mitch McConnell was quoted in the New York Times, or at least quoted in a conversation he was having about Missouri, where he said that the great, the, the new revelations about both domestic abuse and, and abuse of his young child, the Greitens, that that may be sort of the political gift that, that might do him in. And, and it looks like the trend lines are uh, against Greitens as people consume that news, those horrible uh, details in the, in the, in the stories uh, out of Missouri. So, you know, I tend to be bullish that one of the other candidates, probably either the Attorney General Eric Schmidt or Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler, are going to end up getting some momentum, and, and, and Greitens has got a ceiling of about 20 percent at, at best, and probably less than that when push comes to shove. Um, though there is a Democratic candidate, the, the heir to the Bush, the beer uh, fortune, that is now running in that race. So Democrats know that they have a chance to pick it up if it is Greitens as the nominee. Um, as far as the recruitment goes, I mean, we've talked a lot on the show where I've been pretty underwhelmed by a lot of the Republican Senate uh, contenders uh, or lack of contenders in, in some of these big races. But uh, Democrats have their own problems, largely because of this political environment that they're facing. And in the two best opportunities they have to pick up seats, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, Ron Johnson's seat in Wisconsin, open seat in Pennsylvania, hold, held, held right now by Pat Toomey, uh, the Democratic frontrunners are, are very flawed candidates. Mandela Barnes, lieutenant governor, is for the Green New Deal wants to get rid of cash bail uh, across the country. I mean, he literally is an oppo researcher's dream, and he's (laughs) the heavy favorite to win that Democratic nomination in Wisconsin. In Pennsylvania, you've got John Fetterman, who uh, is is probably best known for being this, like, six-foot-ten, tattooed, unconventional-looking lieutenant governor, but he's also someone who's back. He he was a Bernie Sanders supporter in 2016. In the past, he staked out a whole lot of progressive – she supported a whole lot of progressive positions on issues like crime, on issues uh, like like the economy. Um, I mean, it's not maybe not as much baggage as Barnes, but but someone who certainly has his own. Flaws. No, I mean that's it, extremely it, interesting, and I think there's probably some rooting interest over at the NRSC about some of these people getting the nomination and just sort of like opening up the can of all this oppo and with all the money uh, to pour on these people and maybe hold one or both of those seats while being on offense elsewhere. We'll be watching it, breaking it down in the months to come with Josh Krasauer, politics editor at National Journal, Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, always enjoy it. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Guy. Guy Benson show is back right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson show. Back on the Guy Benson Show, some news today. Susan Collins, Republican of Maine, has announced she will vote yes on the nomination of Katanji Brown-Jackson for the U.S. Supreme Court. That would put the number at 51 now, I would believe, for confirmation. And there are still a few Republicans out there who are publicly undecided, including Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski. I told you this would be relatively smooth sailing. I told you she was going to get confirmed. I even predicted it would probably be her on day one. My over-under on yes votes was 52. She's at 51 and counting, and the vote is a few days away. We'll be watching that carefully. On the Guy Benson Show, Howie Kurtz coming up in our final hour, the happy hour. That's straight ahead. 
5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show from Tallahassee, Florida. Today, off to Miami later on. Thank you so much for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com, the podcast, is always free of charge each and every day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com and the happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is all over the place down here in Florida. It is delicious. As the weather warms up, it gets even better. Of course, ice cold. TheLongDrink.com. That's their website. You can see where it's sold near you. Eight new states in the last few weeks. They're expanding. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Joining me now is Howie Kurtz, host of Fox News Channel's Media Buzz, Sundays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Also host of the podcast Media Buzz Meter, FoxNewsPodcast.com. You can follow him on Twitter, at Howard Kurtz. Howie, welcome back to the show. Wish I was with you in Florida. <laughs> Very much so. Let's start here. I know everyone's talking about it. It's one of those kind of mostly apolitical, nonpartisan, cultural flashpoints, the slap at the Oscars on Sunday. There was a story in the New York Times that I found really interesting on the media side of this and just how audiences work in the modern era. According to this report, after the slap happened, because of so much word of mouth on social media and just all this buzz flying around the Internet, the audience grew by more than half a million people basically instantaneously. And our engineer, Dan, has made the point in the past, you know, this sometimes occurs in sports where there's you know, a really exciting game or something wild right. is happening in a game and people are like, oh, man, and then they tune in. I'm not sure I can remember something like this happening on an event like the Oscars, but it did. 555,000 Americans tuned in after the slap by virtue, I'd imagine, of the online discussion about it. Very much a new era, Howie. Well, clearly the message for the Academy is that they got to have somebody beating the crap out of each other and future Academy Award telecasts. <laughs> they I, should I, promise I mean, it. They should promote <laughs> it in advance. Someone's going to get laid out. We can't tell you who. We won't right. tell you when. Tune in. That might make me tune right. in, actually. I'll tell you, of all the stories I've covered, and I've covered a lot of stories of this type, I, I've, I've rarely seen something where everybody in your life is talking about it. People don't usually talk to you about Oscars or television or politics or everything else. There was something about the rawness of it in this moment uh, that just set off this huge debate. And I think there's also a lot of serious – I mean, look, let's get out of the way the fact that Will Smith behaved atrociously. Yes. It was outrageous. Uh, you even have some uh, black commentators now like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar dunking on him and saying he's feeding the stereotypes of blacks being prone to violence. Chris Rock, I think, handled it well, even though, yes, it was a bad and tasteless joke about Smith's wife. Uh, but nothing happened to Will Smith. Oh, the Academy is investigating. I mean, he, he, he got to get his own Oscar. Uh, he got to dance at the Vanity Fair party. And then a day later, you know, his, his damage control specialists say, okay, here's the apology you should give. And the apology that he gave in the written statement was much better than what he did in the moment. Uh, and everyone's course. like, well, that's the publicist getting involved here. And I mm -hmm. feel like there's a lot of synthetic reaction to that being like, yeah, we, we don't really necessarily believe you. It's not even from your own mouth. Uh, yeah, because it, was, it had all the hallmarks of a 
carefully crafted and choreographed statement. And I have a column on, on the Fox website today about the slap culture because it seems to me like well, we don't literally have lots of people going around slapping each other. But, you know, this sort of thing does get rewarded in the sense that it draws attention to Will Smith, obviously negative attention, draws attention to the Oscars. And so whether it's, you know, Donald Trump is the classic slap artist but gets has gotten slapped around uh, as much as uh, any president in modern history. Joe Biden tried to slap Vladimir Putin, but he had to take back the slap and then he took back the take back. Uh, and if you go to, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, Katanji Brown Jackson, uh, AOC, you know, the, the people who do all this kind of verbal uh, combat. Remember that Congressman Paul Gosar yeah. uh, animated video showing him uh, killing AOC? And, and, and somehow there's an appetite for this, for there's a market for this. So when you take, you know, two of the most famous people on the planet, two entertainers, you play it out in the context of a live Oscars telecast. No wonder the ratings went up mm-hmm. and no wonder everybody's still buzzing about it. And I did hear that Chris Rock may be a beneficiary because I think he handled it very well in the moment, certainly better than Will Smith did. And I've heard that the demand for Chris Rock's comedy tickets now are through Mm -hmm. the roof and the prices are going up. So maybe it didn't work out too badly for him. But on this sort of slap culture, it's a perfect segue into a soundbite that I want to ask you about. This was last night on Stephen Colbert's show. He decided that what the moment really called for was an attack on our colleague, Peter Ducey, the White House correspondent who had asked President Biden a question, I think a perfectly legitimate, fair question, given everything that's happened over the last week or so. But Colbert disagreed, apparently, and cut 18. Listen to this. Yesterday, uh, President Biden held a press conference and he was asked uh, a ridiculous question by a ridiculous man, Fox News reporter, and that one kid in high school who wears a suit to gym class, Peter Ducey. <laughs> Jimmy, uh, drop the deuce. When you said a chemical weapon use by Russia would trigger a response in kind. It will trigger a significant response. What does that mean? Time. I'm not going to tell you. Why would I tell you? you got to be silly. <laughs> Remember. Yes. Remember how on last night's show I said that slapping is never, ever the answer? <laughs> I'd like to file a one-time exemption on behalf of the President of the United States. And... Okay, Howie, so a few things. Number one, Peter Ducey does not strike me as the type of kid who was uptight in high school. He strikes me as maybe a bit mischievous, so I think that's a misread there by Colbert. Setting that aside, this is a very weird attack to me because Ducey was responding to a series of statements, and they had a long exchange back and forth, he and the president, about things the president had said publicly out loud, and then the White House had to walk back shortly thereafter, including this thing about chemical weapons and responding in kind. Right. It was not a ridiculous question from a ridiculous person. It was a serious, obvious question from a journalist, and Colbert makes it into this thing that it's so silly that he would even ask it, he deserves to be slapped. Just... I'm not always a huge fan of what Colbert does with his show, and that's his business, but this one seemed like a head-scratcher and a little bit, I don't know, a little gross to me. Yeah, and not especially funny. And, yeah, the way he cut the clip, you didn't see the, the setup by Ducey, which was serious stuff. Every example he cited was absolutely accurate. Biden disputed it, but that's the nature of these things. Uh, and also, um, Stephen Colbert, you know, has built uh, his ratings, the number one late night show, although I guess Gutfeld outdraws him uh, on many nights, as an anti-Trump, anti-Fox liberal guy. 
that's he doesn't make any bones about it. He's the most political of people. So, of course, he's going to look for an opportunity to go after um, Steve Ducey, excuse me, Peter Ducey. And, uh, you know, I think it's probably the first of about five million slap jokes that we're going to hear. Uh, everybody's going to adapt. But it was totally unfair. Perfectly legitimate question. Asked respectfully, yep. not in a grandstanding way. End of story. Sometimes the excesses of the media, whether it's comedians, but more often the news media, can redound to the benefit of the politicians that they're attacking, right? They can't help themselves. They pile on politicians. And a lot of voters view that as a positive for the target. And someone who might be front and center in terms of that phenomenon right now is the governor of the state that I'm in, Florida, Ron DeSantis, who is under withering constant attack, not just in Florida, but nationally, from the Democrats, from the media in particular. We've done a lot of coverage of the various lines of criticism against him. Many of them, I think, are unfair. And I had a sit-down with him, an exclusive on this show yesterday, three segments, really wide-ranging, and I asked him about the media, and he basically said a lot of the time the barbs that he endures from them end up helping him politically. Here's part of that exchange, Howie. I want you to hear it. Cut 25. Here I am. I was like one of the only governors backing law enforcement, even in the summer of 2020. So I think there's a number of factors. And then, quite frankly, the media has helped us with this because the corporate press will always try to paint Florida as like the worst place ever. The only people that works with are the are the leftists who actually believe the corporate narratives. Nobody else in America believes it anymore, especially conservatives. So a conservative in, in, in Wisconsin is going to say, oh, well, hell, CNN's attacking the governor of Florida. He must be doing a good job. And then they are more interested in visiting and ultimately moving it's here. It's like in-kind contributions it's from the mainstream media every day with you. What do you make of that, Howie? Because it seems like he relishes these fights and – whether they know it or not, a lot of these journalists who are endlessly critical of Ron DeSantis have elevated him. Oh, I don't think there's any question about it. And that was a great exchange, by the way. I mean, I remember reporting on a, a very thin, misleading 60 Minutes investigative report. Yeah, we talked about it here, DeSantis. you and I. Yes, absolutely. And, and DeSantis has a lot of Trumpian qualities. They have been allies. Of course, 2024 could conceivably change that in that he likes to – he's very aggressive when he feels like he's been wrong going back – uh, against the media, and and he enjoys using the media as a foil, as do, a foil, excuse me, as does Donald Trump. Uh, and it is true. I mean, if, if, a lot of people who are not politics junkies undoubtedly know who Ron DeSantis is uh, because he's constantly under assault for everything he does. And that's not to say that he's not, you know, shouldn't get legitimate scrutiny and legitimate sure. criticism. And I, so I think all of this helps him politically, and he is shrewd enough to know it. And I think he plays to that because a lot of people, uh, as with Donald Trump, they like the fact, I, you know, that Trump called the press the enemy of the people. They like the fact that he called out reporters by name. DeSantis seems to do it in a little bit less of a personally confrontational way, and I think that's to his benefit. And he also has, I think, a lot more information at his fingertips to specifically rebut things. And that's part of what has been appealing to me. Briefly on this, Howie, before I get to mm -hmm. the final subject – your thoughts on the media's portrayal of the legislation here in Florida, now law, that DeSantis signed. He and I had an exchange about it yesterday at length, like six minutes about it, back and forth, follow-ups. It was respectful. I have some issues with the law, and I support other parts of it. We went back and forth. But what a lot of the news media did was just echo the slogan, the activist slogan, quote-unquote, don't say gay, which is not what the bill really says at all in terms of its its practical implications, the way that it would be applied. That was just, you know, what the left decided to call it, and the media rolled with it. 
And it seems like, again, those attacks have ended up backfiring in some ways as it's a pretty popular law here in Florida. Right. Uh, well, you know, I have some issues with the law as well, but when I read more about it and how it mainly applies to much younger kids, um, I thought, well, there's some merit to this as well. And it really struck me, you would not have seen this even 10 years ago, Guy, uh, the way that this, you know, the opponents called it the don't say gay bill. And in news stories, that would be in the lead, no quotes, no in attribution, detractors. In the headline, detractors called it the don't, don't say gay bill. It was a triumph of political labeling. I'm not saying it was a triumph because I agree with you there's been some backlash, but it would, the, the, the anti-DeSantis slogan was adopted in news stories, not bloviators on TV, not political columnists, uh, in a way that I found deeply troubled. But that's yep. sort of the world we live in now. Now, leave the bloviating to me. Thank you very much. All that's right. my job. So all yours. <laughs> Howie, last question I have to ask you about this. The Washington Post, what, a year and a half later, has discovered the Hunter Biden laptop story. It's not Russian disinformation. It's not this outrageous affront to our electoral integrity or whatever. It's not being throttled and censored or anything like that. We saw this a bit from the New York Times recently. Now an even deeper dive from the Washington Post. Oh, the laptop is authentic. It's real. Oh, wait, this business the now president's son was doing in China. Look at all these documents. This is newsworthy. I mean, I'm fine with the fact that they're starting to really look into it. CNN reporting today that the Justice Department investigation into Hunter Biden has ramped up. That's a real thing that's going on. All of this was verboten from the mainstream press, most of it, leading up to the election. And now the issue, I think, of course, is the timing. What do you think about what The Washington Post has reported? And then sort of this before and after Russian disinformation, strangle this story in the crib versus, oh, oops, now I guess it can be told. Yeah. I mean, I look back on it now, final weeks of the campaign, New York Post story, laptop and so forth. And it, was, it is so embarrassing. It is shameful. It amounted to censorship. Of course, you had Twitter blocking any retreats of the story. Uh, and it really, you know, confirmed the opinion of conservatives that this was an effort to help Joe Biden get across the finish line in 2020. And, you know, when The New York Times comes out and, and legitimizes it, even then, guy, all the other networks did not cover it. I'm glad The Washington Post is doing some of its own reporting. There is a little bit of a feeling of this is an 18-month-old correction or course yes, correction. Yes, Of course, Hunter Biden, you know, whether he actually ends up facing criminal charges or not, was engaging in influence peddling around the world in areas that he didn't have any expertise in. Lots of people do that, but this is the president's son. So uh, I guess you get – it's sort of like I'll give a one-handed clap that they're digging into it now. But, man, it took way too long. Yep. I mean, that that unto itself, the timeline is the scandal to me. I mean, you've got the, the Hunter Biden scandal unto itself and whatever mm -hmm. that's going to how it's going to turn out with the investigation, so on and so forth. The journalistic scandal is the timing of all of this, what they did and did not do back then and what they're finally getting around to do now. And I mean, it just it reeks to high heaven. It's so obvious what went on here. And I don't know why anyone bothers denying it, but some people but still do. But no mea culpa. No, hey, I guess we were wrong. No, uh, well, it's about time we did this. No soul searching <laughs> yeah. whatsoever. Just f f memory hold the old stuff, mm -hmm. and we'll and we'll try to move on. And uh, they wonder really why people don't trust them, right? I there's don't know. there's a very good reason why they've earned the mistrust in many cases. Howie Kurtz, host of Fox News Channel's Media Buzz. You can catch that every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. I'm on the panel from time to time and hopefully again here upcoming soon. In the meantime, you can also hear his podcast, Media Buzz Meter, at foxnewspodcasts.com. Howie, always a pleasure. Thank you.
Thanks, Guy. It's the happy hour. On the Guy Benson Show, we return after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. In that last segment with Howie Kurtz, we did touch on the slap. We all know what that means. And actor Jim Carrey, who's a comedy actor who also has a very weird political side, he's sort of this angry leftist, he, in my opinion, got this one right. He was on CBS News going back and forth with Gail King, the anchor, about what happened. And Carrie was really upset about it, really angry at what Will Smith did. Here's part of that back and forth in Cut 20. I was sickened. I was sickened by the standing ovation. I felt like Hollywood is just spineless, en masse. And uh, it just, it really felt like, oh, this is a really clear indication that uh, we're not the cool club anymore. There was some question today about if anyone else had walked from the audience and done that, they would have been escorted out by security or maybe even arrested. The police asked, asked Chris if he been. wanted to file charges. They asked Chris, do you want to file charges? And Chris apparently said, no, he did not. He doesn't want the hassle. I, I'd have, I'd have for announced this morning that I was suing Will for $200 million because that video is going to be there forever. It's going to be ubiquitous. You know, that insult is going to last a very long time. If you want to yell from the audience and disapprove or sh show a disapproval or say something on Twitter or whatever, you, you know, you do not have the right to, to walk up on stage and smack somebody in the face because they said words. I love that last line. You do not have the right to walk up on stage and smack somebody in the face because they said words. Words are not violence. People who try to blur those lines for their political and ideological reasons are doing something that is dangerous. So Jim Carrey, who I think I disagree with on almost everything, was right on this. He was also right to say that Hollywood is spineless in this case. And he was repulsed apparently by the standing ovation, as were many people. So I wanted to play that for you. That was CBS earlier with Jim Carrey of Ace Ventura fame. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues after this break. Don't go anywhere. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show from Tallahassee, Florida. Yesterday on the program, we had Governor Ron DeSantis. During this hour, almost the entire hour devoted to that interview, I played a few snippets today, gotten some guests' reactions. One of the exchanges got a lot of attention. We referenced it earlier. I want to play that back for you because, hey, when you get a big guest like this for the first time, you milk it, and we're milking it. And also, I think it was really instructive and interesting. That's just my opinion. We can see if you agree, if you missed it yesterday. Here is part of that interview with Governor Ron DeSantis here in Tallahassee yesterday. I actually read the bill. A novel concept, seven pages, pretty easy. I think that the moniker don't say gay is a misnomer. It is biased and lazy for the media to adopt it. It's an activist slogan that does not reflect what's actually in the law, number one. Number two, that K through three provision that you talk about all the time, I think it's unobjectionable. I think it's common sense, and the polls are bearing that out. People, parents, Americans, Floridians support it. I do as well. I have two concerns about the law, and I'm just curious to get your responses to them. Number one, when you get past the K through three verbiage, literally in that same sentence, it also bars 
classroom instruction on these types of issues, sexual identity, gender identity, that are, quote, not age-appropriate or developmentally appropriate at other grade levels. That language strikes me as vague and subjective. Who gets to decide what is age-appropriate later on? Like, in your mind, when would it become appropriate? Middle school, high school? So it'll be, it'll, it'll be a combination between the State Board of Education and the local school boards. Um, and I think that you may see, uh, you know, some parts of the state, you know, come to a little bit different conclusions depending on, you know, the years on some of that stuff. Uh, but, look, at the end of the day, I mean, I think that the, the reason this became an issue because when this first became an issue, you know, I wasn't even aware of some of the stuff that's going on. Uh, but, but, but with this transgender and the gender identity, there is an, an effort to try to tell people, well, you know, you may not really be a boy. You may be a girl. And I think that's totally inappropriate in the school system. I mean, you know, um, we need to focus on the normal things. And so I think that's really the genesis of this. We had a lady yesterday who uh, talked about her experience. Now, her daughter was a little older. Her daughter was in middle school here in Leon County. And she was in school, and the school administrators took it upon themselves to, quote, transition her to a boy. They even gave her a boy's name. They never got the parent's consent, and they never got the parent's permission. So the curriculum issue, I think, is something that is important. Um, and you know, one, I showed the thing of the gender bread man they created where they're trying to say, oh, you know, not really a boy, not really a girl. Um, but the, and that's clearly designed for younger kids. Uh, very younger kids. But I think that the, the, the issue that I think is, is, a, is what role does the parent have? I mean, if a school is doing something as drastic as trying to change somebody's view of their own gender, does the parent not have a right to know that that's going on in school? Right, it's, and, I mean, it's a fair question and it's a fair point, depending on how you read and apply some of this stuff. Could it be interpreted as a requirement for schools, let's say – a high school student is struggling with coming out, and he decides to confide in a trusted teacher, a trusted counselor, let's say, say, hey, I'm struggling, I'm not sure what to make of this, I don't want to tell my parents yet, would the school then have to disclose that confidential conversation to a family? Is that a legitimate concern under this law? Because having gone through the process myself, it's, it's hard, right? And having those discussions in confidence with someone that you can trust without it necessarily being required to go somewhere is vital for young LGBT people. And my concern is if they feel like this law would require, Florida would require schools to, based on the mental well-being or the emotional well-being, which is how it's written in the law, it's kind of vague, if they're going to be required to tell families, those conversations might get bottled up. They may not happen, and that could be harmful. I'm just curious your perspective right. so, on that. So, uh, for, so for one, the um, before you get to that point, uh, classroom instruction, sometimes people say, like, can you even say something in class? That's not what it is. It's what's the curriculum on that part. Instruction. Second, yeah, yeah. Second part of that is it needs to be some type of service that's provided to, in terms of a medical uh, service. And so, you know, when you're dealing with things like in California, you know, they had a girl who the school was administering hormones to, and she was depressed and they should have treated the depression. They were trying to give her hormones. So she ended up committing suicide. The wife is, is or the, the mother's now suing. So I think it's if they're doing something that is just like if you took your kid to a doctor, you so know, it's treatment, not a conversation. Right, exactly. Okay. I, I, think, I, a, I think there needs to be some service that's rendered in terms of a medical service that that's a would, very important where, where a parent would have clearly the right to be informed and to, to object. And just think about it. I mean, 
before all this, like people have conversations all the time. I mean, that's never really been the issue that's triggered this. I think the issue that's triggered this is you have kids that are going in and they're now being changed in terms of their their gender identity. They're they're being told, and it's it's odd. My full exchange with Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, available online, GuyBensonShow.com. When we come back, the home stretch. I had dinner with the governor last night and a few other right-leaning media people. It was off the record, so I can only tell you so much, but I've got a few details, some color that I can share, and guess who has questions? Yes, Curious Christine. Joins me next. That is the home stretch after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday, and we are going to hightail it out of here to the airport and head down to sunny South Florida and Miami. For the rest of the week, I've got some engagements down there, and we'll be doing the show from Miami, which is all the rage right now, all the hotness down there, Thursday and Friday, just remaining in the Sunshine State. We were here in Tallahassee, of course, for our interview yesterday and then our dinner with Governor Ron DeSantis. The interview, by definition, was on the record. You all heard it. If you missed any of those 30-plus minutes, you can catch yesterday's podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. The entire interview is also posted in a separate post at GuyBensonShow.com. But for the podcast, it is GuyBensonShow.com, option number one, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, option number two, or, of course, wherever you get your podcasts. Now... On to the dinner portion of the evening. This is where producer Christine was like blowing up my phone with questions. And there's only so many answers I can provide because it was strictly off the record in terms of the content of the conversation. I'll say this. At first they told us by email that they were going to be confiscating our cell phones before we all go in to make it really, really off the record. And that's happened to me a few times before. I remember we had an event with... Secretary Pompeo, a dinner, and they asked people to surrender their cell phones at the door. It's not that uncommon for off-the-record settings. You don't want people, like, surreptitiously recording stuff. Of course, that would be very unethical. No one was going to do that. But they ended up not taking our cell phones at all. I guess they just trusted us to keep the content of the discussion around the table and afterwards to ourselves. We will do that. We will honor that, of course, here. But maybe there are some ancillary details that Christine is wondering about that I can actually help with. So, all right, Curious Christine, we did not give you nearly enough time yesterday because the DeSantis interview took up nearly the entire hour. So you've got a backlog, I'm sure, of questions. So we might as well get rolling here. Well, so let's start off with you went to the same place that you interviewed him, right? You were at the mansion? Correct. And when when you're walking in, is he standing there greeting everybody? Like, no, hey, so, guy, what's up? So actually, here's what happened just on the timeline. I met Mary Catherine Ham, my very, of course, very close friend, who was staying at my hotel. She and I were both going to this dinner. Down in the lobby at the hotel, I had ordered an Uber. And right before the Uber was going to arrive, like two minutes away, the driver canceled. <gasps> and the next Uber was 26 minutes away. Oh, yeah, and so I'm looking at Mary Catherine. She's on her phone looking to see if maybe she could find a closer Uber, maybe a Lyft or something like that. 
we're not panicking, but we didn't want to be super late. Then someone walks right past us, and I sort of recognize him, I think. So I go around the corner, out the door, and in fact it is my friend from childhood, Seth Dillon, who runs the Babylon Bee. He's been on this show a few times. He was also in town in Tallahassee for this dinner. He also had ordered an Uber, but it was on the way. It was like four minutes away. So I said, is there any way we can jump in with you here? He said, oh, yeah, no problem. So we canceled our other Uber. Thank goodness for this, although we were by no means the last people to arrive. I think there was a universal issue with Ubers in this city last evening. So we showed up. They escorted us through. They wanded us through security. The governor's mansion itself is really picturesque and quite pretty. And you walk into the sort of main hallway and you make a right, and that's where the house opens up. And there were some staff members there from the campaign side, from the official office side. There was someone passing around hors d'oeuvres. There was a cheese plate. There was a bar. Mm -hmm. I knew this would be very interesting to you, Producer Christine. Mm -hmm. There was a, a bar with lots of things. So they had... Red wine, white wine, a few beers, and then some makings for various cocktails. Like a Cosmo? I'm not sure if they could have had a Cosmo ready for you based on some of those ingredients, but I had a gin and tonic in case you were curious. And then probably five minutes after we got there, we were all shaking hands, saying hello. Let's see. Clay Travis was there. Buck Sexton was there. Uh, There's a guy from The Blaze who was there who was super nice. And that might have been it. Ali Stuckey was there. It was a good group. And then, of course, some people on DeSantis's various teams. So we were all chatting, and his team was talking about our interview because they had all heard it. I think that they were uh, very pleased with how it went, although they said there were substantive questions that they almost never get from the media on actual issues. And so I think they appreciate that, even though it wasn't all just, you know, rainbows and butterflies and me blowing kisses for 30 minutes. We got into some serious stuff. I think they actually appreciated that. That comes with the job. So then DeSantis rolls in, and he's not super tall. He's maybe about 5'11", maybe 6 feet tall. He's not a huge imposing figure, but he does totally command a room. He's got a big, booming voice. He starts immediately poking fun at Mary Catherine as a Georgia Bulldog fan and a grad saying, I don't think we let Georgia people into the governor's mansion in Florida because of that rivalry back and forth. (laughs) But then, of course, he had to admit that they won the national championship, so he didn't really have much uh, trash to talk. And then we just all kind of hung out for a cocktail hour, chatted amongst ourselves. It wasn't like a huge, giant circle going around. We never went around and introduced everyone formally. It just kind of happened. But when he came out, were there hugs and kisses? Like, did you run up and be like, Ron, just saw each other? No, like, no, because hugs? I. Because I, I would have hugged him. Yeah, see, the thing is, I'm a classy, appropriate person. <laughs> so I did not bound up to the governor and say, Remember me from earlier today? <laughs> I just played it cool. I shook his hand. Good to see you, Governor. Thanks for the interview earlier. It just aired. Really appreciate it. He said, oh, yeah, it was great. And he was just, you know, glad handing around the room, as a politician would do. And at some point, maybe 45 minutes into it, the doors open up into this pretty grand dining room with a large table, I would guess, for 20 people, something like that. And we had assigned seating. I had my little nameplate. I took a photo of it, and I posted it on my Instagram story. If people are curious... They can see it. 
I think it's still up there for a few more minutes, at Guy P. Benson. That's my handle on Instagram. Please follow me. Also, Twitter, same handle, Guy P. Benson. Who did you sit next to? I sat next to his campaign manager on one side and Mary Catherine Ham on the other side. Ah, so, so they that knew was you were, fun. They knew you were besties. And I was across the table from DeSantis, sort of off a little bit to the left, maybe appropriately. And he just held forth there for the entire dinner. And it was, you know, off the record so people could ask anything, and people did. And he had some, you know, candid assessments of stuff here and there. He gave us some inside scoop from his perspective on the campaign, 2022, looking at other races around the country. There were some laughs. I had one joke that went over very well. I can't tell it because oh. I can't. You know, I just can't. But it went over very well. So then at one point, I believe his press secretary or his it was maybe his comms director actually stood up and said, so sorry, we actually have to grab the governor real quick. I thought the evening was over because we'd been there a decent amount of time. So, no, no, he's got a Tucker interview. So we have to take him off to the governor's office, which is this beautiful office in the residence, which is where he and I did our interview. And so I was familiar with that. They had all the lighting in there. They had the cameras because he was going to do a hit on Tucker Carlson tonight. So they kind of shepherded us out to the gardens while he did that and then he joined us you know he did his thing maybe took off the makeup five six minutes later after dinner drinks they offered us cigars they're like these are the best cigars because they're cuban quality but not from cuba it's all the exiles here who really know what they're doing they're great florida sort of cuban cigars i'm not a smoker so i didn't take one Uh, i might have had like another cocktail or a beer or something like that and we just sort of lingered for a while chatting until folks had to leave. So in total, I was there for the better part of four and a half hours, something like that. And it was great. Like there were times where you could really talk to DeSantis a little bit, almost one-on-one or two or three-on-one. It People had their own little groups and pods where they were chatting. It, it didn't feel stilted or anything like that. And I think everyone got a good amount of face time with him and with his staff. I was very grateful to be included. And... I think I get him more as a person now than I did before, having never really met him. I met him one time in Palm Beach a few weeks ago for literally 30 seconds, which is when they invited me to this, and I had clearly a lot more opportunities here to talk with him on and off the record. Uh, Dinner menu? Can you talk about that? I think I can. It was really good. Uh, And kudos to the chef. So I guess they have, like they have at the White House, a whole team of chefs, they have a head chef at the governor's mansion, and she came out. She's actually very beautiful, and gave us a, a preview of what was to come, and it was all served family style, in order to facilitate a more natural conversation and not a formal, plated, coursed-out meal. And so the first course, I'm just doing this off the top of my head, was a Caesar salad with cornbread croutons. Yeah, and I try to stay away from croutons just as like a lower-carb thing, but not if they're cornbread. That was too good, so that was delicious. Then out came the main course, which was surf and turf. So they had Mm. absolutely beautifully cooked beef tenderloin sliced on a huge platter. I mean, this is a large piece of beef, and they had one at each end of the table. Then they had some sort of a white fish over grits. might have been grouper over grits with this gravy that was – delicious. I mean, both of those dishes were amazing. And the whole thing did have a bit of a southern flair. Have you ever been to Tallahassee? I have not. I would I would have liked to have 
Um, yesterday, <laughs> it's now a that you southern it. city, and <laughs> the old cliche about Florida is true. The farther south you go, the further north you get, because Tallahassee in the north is very much a southern city, but you don't really get southern charm necessarily in, like, Tampa, right, or Palm Beach. It feels more like a northern type of environment. And so then they had green beans as a side and then two different desserts. I'm like, I'll just pick one or the other. It was a strawberry shortcake with basil, which was really good, and then a chocolate cheesecake. I said, I'll just do one. False, I did both. And then we went out for drinks afterwards. And I think that's all I can really tell you. I mean, from start to finish, the whole day sounds like a perfect day. Uh, Maybe next time, just, you know, think about bringing your producer. Yeah, I mean, we'll keep that in mind. We'll take that under advisement very much, and I'll just hand that request off to War Wyatt and see what he thinks. In the meantime, I got to go. Got to go to the airport heading to Miami tonight because we've got the show there Thursday and Friday. Looking forward to that. Talk to you tomorrow, same time, same place, on The Guy Benson Show. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.